I'm going to talk about around, somewhere around 2,000 years of time. So that's why it may take a little while. I'm going to talk about the history of the church. And why am I going to talk about the history of the church? Well, we're a church. And here we are, and why are we here like this? How did this all happen? How, you know, why does this church operate the way it does? Uh, it didn't always operate this way. Churches have changed over time. So I thought I'd go back to the beginning. And to me, the beginning I start with is Paul. I mean, there was, let me back up a little bit from Paul, in that you do remember uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven, you know, he, he re returned from the dead, right? He rose from the dead, and, 40, and he stayed with on earth for 40 days, met somewhere around 500 people, disciples, so forth. And then on the 40th day, he ascended into heaven. And all the disciples gathered in the upper room, and they actually sort of hid there for 10 days together. But in unison, praying to the Lord and singing and, and doing whatever. I'm not sure they were singing, but whatever they were doing, they were there together. And then came Pentecost. Oh, he's beautiful. And, and down came the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire on their heads, and so it began. And that's really the beginning of the church, was Jesus sending the Holy Spirit that he promised to send. And that finally gave courage to those people hiding in that upper room to go out and speak the word, because they were now full of the Spirit. And then Peter did, and he spoke the word, and over 3,000 were saved almost immediately after that. And that, that is Jerusalem. But then from that, uh, we have the story of Saul and Paul. And you remember some of that, I'm sure. And I'm not going to go into all that detail because I have 2,000 years to cover, so i got to keep moving. <laughs> but, you know, Paul was just, he, he was Saul. We'll call him Saul. He became Paul, named Paul later. He was uh, a persecutor of the Christians, right? He actually hunted down Christians, had them dragged off and sent to prison, and was there when uh, Simon was uh, stoned to death, and on it goes. On his way uh, to Syria, no, uh, anyway, so, yeah, Samaria, I get my names right. Uh, he was hit by Jesus. He was knocked off, basically heard from Jesus, knocked off his horse, and uh, Jesus uh, talked to him and blinded him and later sent another man to talk to him about it. And uh, he finally understood that Jesus was real and alive. And he now became a follower of Jesus. Actually, 14 years went on before he then actually went on his missionary journeys. Because it took, takes a lot to renew the mind. Uh, and we have to be patient with that. Nevertheless, so finally, Paul is now ready. So I pick up on his first missionary journey. So that's all the forefront. And the reason I pick up at that point is because Paul, on his missionary journeys, was traveling from town to town, we'll call it speaking the gospel, converting people, setting up churches, and moving on. And what kind of church did he set up was kind of what I was after. So I'll give you a little flavor of his first couple visits and to see what he did and how he did it. And the reason for that is it worked. And why did it work? Well, let's, let me read the first part, Acts 13, uh, verse 2. What instigated the trip? 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. The key is the Holy Spirit. This wasn't Paul's idea. This wasn't man's idea. And we tend to get our own ideas and start doing stuff. But this was a, a directive, a, a movement, a move of the Holy Spirit, we'll call it, on Paul and Silas. Barnabas and Paul, sorry. They went to Antioch first. Uh, and Paul was very good about, uh, he tells us in other letters, his process which has to do with speaking the gospel, not a lot of intellectualism uh, about the Torah and things of, that, of those things, but really it was the gospel. That, the power was in the gospel. The whole city assembled to hear the word from him. So it was very well received. The whole city would show up to hear him. The downside was the Jews incited persecution because it wasn't what their belief system was. So they drove him out. So he wound up not staying long in any of these cities. He came, spoke his word, the city heard him, he was driven out. You wouldn't think that's all that successful, but again, you have to understand that in the background, what's really driving all this is the Holy Spirit. It's not just him speaking the gospel. The Holy Spirit's in the gospel, the Holy Spirit's in the process. He then moved to Lystra and Derby. In each of those towns, large number of people believed, and then he was persecution. In, uh, yeah, in, in uh, let's see, get these right. In Lystra was probably his worst part. Uh, there, uh, the people, the Jews from uh, Antioch and uh, Lystra came to catch up with him. They caught him, they stoned him, they, t they took him and threw, them out, threw him outside of the city and they assumed he was dead. So they had, in their own minds, stoned him to death. I guess in everyone's mind. So the disciples went out to, to find him, I guess to bury him, was probably their plan. And they gathered around him. Uh, but he simply rose up, stood up, walked with him back into the city. So there was basically a miraculous healing going on. And the next day, he went with them to Barnabas and Derby. So it must have been quite a shock to the people who had stoned him that there he was again. But it's, it's, it just shows again the power of the Holy Spirit and the power that God has when the Holy Spirit has his mind made up to move. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So they went all the way back to the cities that had sent the Jews that had stoned him. They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to contribute in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul is the example, probably the most extreme example of the tribulations one encounters when trying to spread the gospel, and set up churches. And then he went on to say, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul's process was to find elders in each of the communities to set up the church and then move on. 
And again, these elders had to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. What were these elders like? Well, according to Paul, they needed to be, you know, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy to dishonest gain. They had to be, quote, good people. They had to be honest people. They had to be God-fearing people. So he looked for the best people he could find who listened to the word and asked them to run that church and move on. This apostolic church was basically principled by Jesus, powered by the Holy Spirit, spread rapidly through Asia and Europe on the system of roads built by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had made transportation possible at this point in time. Probably, and who knows, I don't know how God thinks, but the timing was right for Christianity to be able to spread. However, as foretold by Jesus, persecution of Christians began with Stephen and James under Nero, the, you know, the Roman emperor, and there was rampant slaughter of Christians in Rome until 68 AD. So even though this process sounds simple, well, it isn't. We just saw how Paul was stoned, and there was much resistance to the spread of the gospel. And it was very difficult. But nevertheless, they, they persisted and managed to keep it growing. Uh, it's just, you know, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that, but, you know, it's just uh, more than one can imagine. But on the other hand, you know, we have a little low, a much lower level of persecution here, but it can grow. It's just important to stay in touch with the fact that the Holy Spirit is behind us and will enable us to accomplish what we have in mind with him. During that period of time, the heathen attacked Christian doctrine, invented false stories about Christians, and other belief systems kicked in. There was Gnosticism, where they believed Christ never dwelt on this earth in human form. Montanism, which is Christ's promise that the Comforter had not been fulfilled and the end of the earth was at hand. So they're taking little pieces of our belief system and subverting it. It made it challenging for those who kept preaching the gospel. The church fathers had to sift through a plethora of, of false ideas and rediscover the principles that Jesus originally taught because the thought systems keep straying. That we have the right view today we owe to the long, intense labors of the great Christian fathers of the time. So there's a lot of struggle, a lot of hard work that has long occurred, long time ago, but God was in control, and the Holy Spirit was moving them. And all this is really, really what occurred up to about 300 AD. The constant persecution, the difficulty of spreading the word. Then everything changed. Around 300 AD, the Roman army proclaimed Constantine emperor and marched against Maxitius, the Roman emperor, over Italy and North America, Africa. They had a battle. Constantine saw a cross above the sun the evening before the battle at the Milvian Bridge. He went out to win the battle against overpowering odds and attributed his victory to God. So the winning Roman general won control of Rome, and he believed God helped him to do that. Well, praise God. Maybe he did. I hope he did. I guess he did. I don't know. But that's what he believed. 
and praise God. The advantage of that is, as a result, he issued the Edict of Milan in 313 that placed Christianity upon a footing of equality before the law with other religions, and that put a stop to persecutions. Not only that, that wound up being the religion of Rome at that time. So the Christian name had become a passport to political, military, and social promotion. So now you had to be Christian if you wanted to advance in Rome. It's quite a change. But as a result, everyone became Christian. And thousands and thousands of people poured into the Christian church. And the result of that mighty stream is uh, losing the basic concept of Christianity. They were bringing in their belief system with them, and they outnumbered the Christians. So as a result, uh, the basic principles of the church were almost lost. It became a heathen system. In re response to that, with the Holy Spirit, of course, doesn't just let that happen. So it took another hundred years to square away the Christian church. So this, you know, this goes on and on. The difficulties, the challenges that are caused by fallen nature of man, you know, the desire to uh, control uh, other people with your way, your way of thinking, whatever that might be. And that's persistent. We see that persistently. We certainly see that in the political world. It's also in the church, all through time. There were four councils in order to try to square that away. The religious leaders got together four different times. Council of Nicaea in 325 confessed the belief that there is a deity of Christ, that Christ actually was God. That had to be reaffirmed. No one believed that for a while. Then the Council of Constantinople, 381, the belief in the deity of the Holy Spirit and established the concept of the Trinity that we take for granted, but no, that was finally reaffirmed at that point in time. The Council of Ephesus declared that human beings are totally depraved. Believe it or not, we believe that. <laughs> you know, all men fall short of the glory of God, Romans 8. Uh, yes, you know, we are born with a fallen nature. And thank God, in the grace of God, he forgives that and accepts us as children of God. But first we have to understand that we, by our own way, our own works, aren't sufficient. And finally, the Council of Chalcedon, 451, expressing the existence of the two natures of Christ, human and divine. So we believe those four basic functions today. But that had to be reaffirmed, it took a while. Uh, but then, even though that was recovered, the church as it was formed still went downhill. And again, due to man's desire for power and control, as opposed to following the Holy Spirit, uh, the 5th century church showed deterioration uh, in a variety of issues, prayers for the dead, a belief in purgatory, the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice, a more ritual, less preaching, uh, just the deterioration caused by men being sinners. Misunderstanding of the Bible, heathenism, and at the same time, all of this was degrading, Rome fell. All that time, the German uh, tribes were marching across Europe and eventually conquered, overcame Rome. And then we entered what's called the Middle Ages, 
So for those who remember the Middle Ages, it's a little before my time, but not much. <laughs> so now we have religion basically unpowered, it seems like, Rome unpowered. Where's the Holy Spirit? What's going on? The Holy Spirit is there. And what we have to remember through all of this, even though it looks horrible from the outside, there's a remnant that believes sincerely in God all through this. We even saw this back when the Jews were hauled off uh, for 70 years to Babylon. Uh, you know, a remnant survived, a remnant returned, uh, even though Israel was such a miserable state before that, as described by the prophets. Well, here, same thing is true. Even though it's now the Dark Ages, uh, the church has fallen quite a bit. The people who conquered those Germanic tribes, which I probably was one because I came from Germany, I guess, but nevertheless, uh, they adopted Christianity. The word was spread with them. The Franks were the first Germanic tribe to adopt Christianity after the invasion. St. Patrick became the apostle of Ireland uh, by 461, and the church was established in Ireland. 100 years later, Pope Gregory sent missionaries to England to drive out heathenism. Germany and the Netherlands were evangelized. So things were happening during this period of time. A downside of it is that though there is a, a process of believing that the best way to approach God was to isolate yourself, become a monk, go into a monastery, and separate yourself from society instead of dealing with society. And that went on for quite a while. And that isn't what Christ calls us to do. You know, he calls us to go out into the world and spread the gospel and bring people to him, not go hide in the corner, no matter how good you are in the corner. That isn't what he's asking us to do. So that went on for quite a while. And during this period of time of... Uh, weak Christian uh, belief system, we'll call it, that was the time there was a rise of Islam. It sort of was a substitute, an alternative. Uh, it grew in power in that low moral vacuum of our deteriorated Christian church. Islam conquered Asia, North Africa, and it was a conquering force. It had armies. Religions had armies at that time. Heading in New York when it's finally stopped by tours, uh, by Charles Martel and Charles the Hammer in 732. There was a war, and uh, they stopped the Islam from moving into Europe. So be it. Uh, neither was very attractive on the outside. Nevertheless, uh, out of that degenerate church, uh, the feudal lords fought each other, and then you wound up basically generating uh, a church system that became secular, more secular, raising up armies, taking over political control. So you now had Europe being ruled by uh, papal power, we'll call it, the popes. And you had the rise of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, you had, uh, there was no difference between political and church at that point. The pope really was like it was as if our president of the United States was head of the church at the same time. And we see, we see some of that lingered even in England. 
the king or queen was also head of the Church of England. That's a real problem, as you can imagine. Uh, the church being controlled by political powers. Because uh, uh, that's, again, just emphasizes the fallen man nature dragged into the church. It continued to, to, the, to degrade itself. Uh, once it was in the political mode, the papal office reached an all-time low when Benedict IX sold the office of Pope for 1,000 pounds of silver to Gregory VI. So, it, you know, it's just, uh, just an ex it's became a political entity, paying off to get your position. And the position was head of the church. And at that point of, the time, point of time, the Pope was the connection to God for the church, that was the belief system of the time. And then it was Eastern Church, a Western Church. Eastern Church uh, was uh, the Western Church is, is the sort of out of that came the Roman Catholic Church. The Eastern Church became the Greek Orthodox Church. And I'll just keep going. That's enough of that. <laughs> 2,000 years is a lot to cover. But my main point of all that is showing what can happen to the church when the Holy Spirit isn't part of the process. When we let man take control and he pleases himself, he takes, he, you know, he's after power. He's after, man wants to do that. That's the fallen nature of man. So it's so important to understand where the church has been, how it's been through that, and how to come out of that. Well, the first step of coming out of that, we ran into a fellow called Martin Luther. So he uh, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church of Wittenberg in 1517. And basically, uh, what changed his mind was simply reading Romans 1.17, the, the righteous will live by faith. God had spoken to him, and he now realized that man is saved not by works, but by faith. And that, that was like radical. Uh, I think because we've heard it for so long, we sort of take it for granted. But that was, you know, that was a very radical thought at the time. The religion of the time was all about your behavior. You had to do these certain things for the church, give, give a certain amount, do certain things, pray a certain way. It was all dictated, the laws of the church. And if you did all these things right, uh, you might go to heaven, but maybe not. After you died, then someone would have to pay some indulgences is called to buy your way into heaven, and then you're good. And that was kind of the philosophy at the time. Martin Luther ch changed all that. He uh, put up these, generated these 50, 95 theses. He came along at the same time as the printing press. So, you know, technology is kind of interesting, being a technical guy. The roads in Rome helped Christianity to spread. The printing press helped Martin Luther to spread his thoughts. And that rapidly spread all throughout Europe. Uh, and, the main four, and the four main elements that his 55 theses address is uh, the New Testament, defining the New Testament, explaining the New Testament, the number one. Number two, all people are priests, not just the one in the church. The, the church is a community of believers and the distribution of the Bible. The Bible was hidden. It was written in 
different languages. It was only available to uh, the people who taught at the church. The Roman church responded to that uh, and certainly wasn't going to put up with that. So they persecuted anyone who had anything to do with that. And that started what was called the Thirty Years' War. So because the church was militarized at the time, it had access uh, to means to make it difficult. And as a result of the Thirty Years' War, uh, in France and Netherlands, more than 10 million people died in that war. So it's not a little skirmish. It was throughout Europe, and it was devastating. Nevertheless, Protestant churches began. And we're not, obviously we're an output of that. And it would be nice and simple if a Protestant church formed in the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we could just simply follow that. But no, we still have problems because we're still men and women of fallen nature. So we have how many different Protestant churches? Lots. All kinds that believe, still believe all kinds of things, uh, which makes it challenging. And I could go into a variety of the different Protestant churches, but I think you probably know more about them than I do. And it comes, uh, you know, Jesus isn't for that. You know, he had a prayer of unity for all of us uh, during his, his final. Uh, dissertation in the book of John. He prayed for us. He prayed for unity of the church. We pray for unity of the church. We know how important that is, but we still struggle with that. The uh, Probably one of the biggest splits that affects us is socianism, it's called, which denies the Trinity and insists on salvation on character rather than the atoning blood of Christ. So we're now back, there's a, and this, is, this actually leads to Unitarianism. It's a modernist rejection of the supernatural and places the mind of man above the Bible. And that's probably uh, the most common form of rejection in the Protestant churches that, that I see anyway, is the belief of uh, man's intellect, which is assuming that, let's say, man's understanding of science outweighs what we see in the Bible. And obviously, you can talk about issues such as evolution. You can talk about uh, the unbelief of supernatural, which we believe in. I do, anyway. The Bible professes it. Uh, we see supernatural healings. We see supernatural salvation. The whole, everything about God is supernatural. And what I find about supernatural is what makes it supernatural, what makes it not, na what makes it not natural. What is, what is natural? Let me back up there. I think what the problem with man and his fallen nature and the supernatural is that Man has trouble believing anything that he can, can't comprehend. You know, for example, God created billions and billions of stars in a day. Uh, it's a little hard to fathom in our little two-pound brains how that could ever happen. 
So we're limiting God to what we think can happen. And that's the limit. That's our problem. That's not his. He can do those things. We just can't conceive how he does it. And because we can't conceive how he does it, we assume he can't do it. We can't limit God by our comprehension. Anyway, moving on from that. Um, placing a reason above faith is a problem, and it permeates churches. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of what the Bible says and believe in the Bible and believe in God and his ability to do things that we can't even begin to comprehend. And, in, and there are numerous Protestant religions. One I, one I found that was probably the most interesting uh, coming down through time were the Methodists. Uh, that's an out, outcome of uh, John Wesley of England. And that, kind of, that was a step away from Calvinism. Calvinism was, was kind of tough. It only, through Calvinism, not that many were saved. Methodism kind of preached that all had the ability to be saved, which was much more well-received. I think we're still there. We believe uh, salvation is available to all. But in addition, the Methodists also understood the need for spreading the gospel. And they had, uh, all throughout the southeast and northeast U.S., uh, they had uh, circuit-riding preachers who would simply get on their horses, go from town to town, and preach. Not unlike Paul. Uh, they weren't stoned. Actually, they were quite well-received. They were received by lots of people in many towns. And then that grew, and that grew again. And camp meetings started, which was kind of exciting because, you know, it's, it was like a revival at that point in time. And in the, in the early 1800s, about 1820s, 1830s, that started the camp meetings. And I don't know uh, if you know about camp meetings, but there were quite a few camp meetings on Cape Cod. And uh, I'm, I happen to be reading a book about uh, Bound Brook Island. Does anyone know Bound Brook Island? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> it's an island on Cape Cod. It used to be an island. It's not anymore. But uh, if you go to Wellfleet, you have, uh, you know, the little harbor, Wellfleet Harbor, that we're probably familiar with if you've ever been there. And then just outside of the harbor, as you look out, say, from the bookstore restaurant there, which is a nice restaurant if you ever want to go, sit on the balcony, you look across the water. Very nice. And you see a strip of land out there. That strip of land out there on the other side of the harbor is Great Island. And that's accessible. You drive to it, it's a parking lot. It's controlled by the National Seashore. Nice hiking trails. We go off and... So, there, so that's Great Island. And then north of that is Gifford Island. And then north of that is Bound Brook Island. And these islands were separate at one point in time. They could sail ships between them, deliver goods, and things like that. Uh, that kind of went away when uh, they... In the early days when everything... The energy source was wood. Wood for heat, wood for everything. I mean, that was the energy source at the time. So all the trees were cut on Cape Cod for wood. 
And so as a result, erosion occurs and then uh, the separation between the islands fills in with uh, debris and dirt and whatever and, and sort of like swamps build up. Uh, so now you can get to the three islands, but you have to sort of work your way around those wet spots. But Boundbrook is still there. Uh, and there are markers that show where schoolhouses used to be. There used to be very uh, active villages in those areas. Their main income at the time was whaling. They had a, originally whaling was done uh, by chasing whales onto shore. They did that for quite a number of years in that area. I don't know if you know, but the, this Wellfleet Harbor comes around and, and whales come around and you can kind of chase them on shore at high tide. And then as the tide goes out, you beach the whales. And that's how they would uh, then have the whales cut them up, sell the oil, whatever they did with the whales. That worked for quite a number of years until they used up all the whales, and then they had to start heading out to sea in boats to find them, and on goes the whaling industry that kicked off from there. Uh, but there was a community in Boundbrook, and camp meetings started up, and they wound up having camp meetings even in Boundbrook that is now basically unpopulated these days, but just a few houses. But at the time, hundreds of people would show up and they'd show up with their tents, and they'd form a circle of tents, and there'd be a preacher in the middle, and each tent would have its own little fire in front of the tent, and they'd be cooking and have, having food, and, but there'd be, still be preaching going on. Uh, and then they, uh, that developed over time. A few years later, there was a, a, a meeting, not only there, but up in Truro in 1826. Thousands of people showed up in Truro for another camp meeting. For another preacher, his name was Lorenzo Dow. Again, preaching the word of God, being heard, being just wonderfully accepted. There was even, uh, I don't know, there's a house that we hiked near called the Atwood Higgins House. The Atwoods were a family in, uh, in that, that area, Wellfleet. Uh, and they, they were... Uh, strong Christians, and it seemed like everyone in that area were Christians at that point in time. So that was just, just a powerful move of the Spirit at that point. Even after that, we had uh, a camp meetings in Hyannis, I don't, you know, the uh, uh, near Craigville Beach. Uh, there's an area of, uh, where the camps used to be. There's the tabernacle on the hill there, and we, there's a place you can walk up and see the tabernacle, and uh, they used to have a place where they preached, and they'd have all the tents around. They would do that year after year, and the tents were replaced by the little gingerbread houses that you see in the different camp meeting areas. There's a much large area on Martha's Vineyard uh, as well. There's, there's also one in Yarmouth, uh, not far, just off of Willow Street. So... There was a move of the Spirit in the 1800s, camp meetings, powerful move. So we've, we've come back a long ways from this fallen church. It's working its way back. People are starting to hear the gospel. And all good, all better, we'll put it that way. So looking back at all of that, <laughs> what do we make of all that? You know, we started off with Paul with his Spirit-led uh, 
sort of elder-based church, uh, relying on the Holy Spirit to empower us. Then we went downhill with man and control. Then church and politics. And then trying to recover from that. And some religions recover and some don't. Uh, there are still plenty of churches that are still, I'll call it, in trouble. But out of that came, was always a remnant, was always a group willing to work for Jesus, spread the word. And here we are today. And where we are here right now is we're kind of working our way back to the original form of an elder-led church. And the key there is uh, a church led by the Holy Spirit, believing in the Bible, and calling all, on all members of the church to participate with their God-created physical talents and spiritual giftings to proclaim the gospel to the lost. And that's really, to me, that's the best church that I can comprehend. So, uh, and I'm always open to correction. <laughs> but the key is the Holy Spirit. The key is the Bible. Obviously, Jesus is in all of that. God, the Trinity. But it's more than, the church is more than the person up front. It's the people. The church are all the people, you know. And I talked about this a little bit during the last communion I did, maybe a couple Sundays ago now. Having to do uh, with the talents and giftings of the Holy Spirit in each of us. You know, God, we're, we're fearfully and wonderfully made by God. I'm convinced, you know, it's... It, you can look at science and Gregor Mendel and say, okay, well, there's certain uh, genes I get, and that's why I am what I am. <laughs> there's more to it than that. You know, God intervenes. He, I believe he intervenes in the womb and adjusts and modifies and does whatever is necessary to make us what he wants us to be. And that's starting the point. That affects our physical. So we all have physical talents whether they're able to uh, lift big trees or be able to uh, not be tone deaf like me, <laughs> you know, to be able to generate good music or whatever. A lot of the, some very uh, uh, appropriate physical talents for the plans he has for us. And then after that comes the spiritual giftings. And they come as required. There's two requirements for that, three maybe. One is believing in them, two is requesting them, and God will bestow you with them as you need them to accomplish your purposes. Well, what are these purposes? To me, the purpose is to be part of the church, to fulfill some piece of the church. And the Bible talks about the church being a body with arms and legs and feet and all different parts that work together in order to accomplish the church's task, which is to reach the lost, is one of the major issues. So we all participate in that. Well, how can we all participate in that? By helping the church. 
So, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, there's opportunity here, opportunity to help the church. Even when looking at the church, uh, even when selecting a church, you know, there's sort of two ways of looking at a church when you go to select the church. One is, which is the most comfortable and offers me the most, the best coffee and uh, <laughs> refreshments after the service and, and whatever. You know, there's the physical side. Which is the nicest church? Which has the best message? Which has the best music? Or, and, and to me, that's all, that's all wonderful, but it's self-centered. The other side of it is that I think Christ calls us to do is be other-centered. And that is, is there a church I can find that will allow me to express my purposes, allow me to become part of the church, to contribute to the church? And that's somewhat of a challenge. I've been in several churches, and not every church allows you to enter in and participate without having to please certain people, or there's a political side to churches oftentimes. So I pray this church is not political. I pray this church is open to your giftings. Uh, I'm amazed at the number of uh, people who are already participating in this church. We even we talked about the youth camp meeting with 50-odd youth at the church. There are almost 50-odd youth workers at the church at the same time. I mean, where did these 50 people come from? They came from you. So there is a participation. I'm not saying there isn't. And, uh, and there's more to come. And the kind of things we do is, is only exciting. The church can only do more things and grow more things and offer more things. Uh, and that's what I look forward to, is participating in the church that's offering more things and allows everyone to participate and feel good about it. You know, it's not a, it's, it's not a sacrifice. It's a real pleasure to participate in a church activity that accomplishes things, especially with the youth, but at any age. Youth is, is to me, is the most dramatic because to me, I, I just love seeing that. That's my personal thing. But, it's, but there's all ages uh, need help somehow. There's a lot of older people on Cape Cod. Uh, maybe that they need to be reached. You know, different group people have different talents with different groups of people. So I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, I just wanted you to see Paul's church, what it can fall into <laughs> over time, which it has been much of the time, was a fallen church. Nevertheless, a remnant survived. And now we're, I think, in a position to be a church of God that functions and spreads the gospel. So let's just pray for a second. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Open our eyes and open our ears to what you have to say, Lord. Show us the path each of us must take, Lord. Show us our giftings. Show us uh, where we can help you, Father, because we live to glorify you, Father, not ourselves. We live for you and your purposes, Lord. And may we reach the lost. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.